Well, these are exciting times for our congregation. Uh, these are important. That's not a cliche. These are important times for our congregation. Our world is troubled, and we don't want to be so chronocentric and narcissistic. We think this is the only time our world's ever been troubled. The world is always, to some degree, troubled. But our nation is deeply troubled. And in times like these, people are looking for comfort. People are looking for direction. People are looking for hope. Uh, people are looking for leadership, frankly. And I deeply believe, I, I really, really, really deeply believe that religion, in the best sense of that word, religion is just, a lot of people, that word has fallen on hard times for them, but religion, in its strictest sense, are the structures and the organization that nurtures and fosters in community spirituality. And I believe that religion slash spirituality must be a vital part of the leadership as people are looking for help. And I distinctly believe, specifically, that both pastorally, which is in comfort, and prophetically, which is in discomfort, I think the Christian church that we find ourselves a part of must assert itself right now uh, as it always has been called to, but I believe especially now we should assert ourselves with power and grace. And to that end, local congregations like ours, it's very important that local congregations like ours do exactly what we're doing at this time. And that is they have to find their heart and they have to find their voice. They have to find their part, their role, their place in all of this. And that's exactly what we're doing here at Grace Point. We are in a vital collaborative process between the pastors, the leadership council, and the congregation, and even more than that, with the community outside. There is a part of what drives the vision and mission of this church is the need outside of these walls. Before a business is built, there is a demand for a product. And this gospel product that we believe, and the way Melissa articulated it earlier, there is a community of people outside these walls that do not even know we exist. And that community is driving us to become who we are. And it's imperative that we let them know that we're here, like-minded people. So we're in this collaborative process of, of doing a couple of things. We are revisiting and establishing what are the theological underpinnings of our congregation. The theological base and foundation of our congregation. We're doing that. But we're doing that for a purpose, not just to be ideologues, not just to be abstract thinkers. We're looking at our underpinnings and, and giving clarity to our theological vision so that we can be clear about what our mission is on this earth. What we believe deeply impacts what we do. And so it's important that we believe right and we're looking and this is a good process for us. We're asking really simple but intense questions like who are we? Not just individually, but as a congregation. Who is this congregation? What are we doing here? What is our role in this Middle Tennessee community and in the world writ large? To that end, last week, we brought a helpful, I think, lesson and exercise to you. An exercise that, frankly, first grew out of my own personal struggle. Uh, and I say struggle in the best sense of the word. Melissa, Anna, myself, the leaders of this church have been wrestling at this season uh, individually and as a staff. But personally, I have been doing my own soul searching uh, on those same questions. Who am I? Where do I fit in this religious spiritual spectrum? Where do I fit in the human family? And out of my own soul searching, I, I began to develop some of this stuff and I, I took it to Melissa and then Anna and we sit down as a staff and we wrestled through and even more clarity came. And then we were so moved by that process that we extended it to the leadership council and we spent hours with them wrestling through the same material and then ultimately we decided to um, bring it to you. So, and we are very indebted today to the very talented and dedicated Glenn uh, Taylor for taking last week's presentation and putting it into some beautiful, beautiful slides. A lot of you have already seen them on Facebook. I had the privilege, they were such a good guide, Glenn, just such a great visual. I had the privilege of meeting with dozens of you this week, individually and in some small groups, um, to discuss and to contemplate, and a lot of insight was gleaned. So 
We wanted to take just maybe 15 minutes and look at those slides as Glenn has done them and just kind of review with a little more clarity what we couldn't do last week. So, Glenn, the first slide would be progressive spirituality. Some of you got handouts when you came in. You're the unlucky ones because we pulled them about 10% of the way in because we realized that we had misprinted and put two, two of the same slides. So don't look at your handout. Turn it over and write on it. Just look up at the board. Progressive spirituality. Progressive Christianity is a part of progressive spirituality. Uh, there are three tenets to progressive spirituality. Progressive Buddhists, progressive Jews, progressive Muslims, progressive Christians all concur on these three tenets. They are at the base of our allegiance to spirituality. The first is we do have a sense that life is more than organic, it's more than corporeal, it's more than just material. There is a sense among progressive religionists or spiritualists that there is, some call it God, some call it source, some call it ground of all being. But ultimately, we sense God with, with a measure of curiosity and a measure of gratitude and a matter, measure of curios, uh, curiosity, gratitude, and mystery, humility. We understand that the most that we can ever say about the holy completely other is metaphor that we are always pointing we are never capturing so as we approach God we believe as progressive spiritual people that God is a mystery to be explored and I'm reminded I, I quote this quite often but I'm reminded of the Greek word mysterion that we translate mystery mysterion does not mean as, as, as a lot of people commonly think about mystery as something that is unknowable. The Greek word mysterion that Paul used when he talked about the mysteries of Christ being revealed, mysterion does not mean something is not knowable. It means it's infinitely knowable. So the beauty of that is you can explore and you can come to answers. But the beauty of the mystery is when you get that answer, it opens three new questions. And have you found that to be true as you've explored God? It just continues to go. So it's infinitely knowable. So God is mystery. The second is that Life is a gift of that source. Life is the gift of God. And there's nothing that we can do that is more holy and whole than to enjoy the gift that God has given us. I come from a holiness background and I literally grew up believing the exact opposite. I thought this life was to be endured as we waited on the life to come, right? How many of you grew up like that? There's nothing, we just, we, you name it, we were against it, and if it made you smile, it must be sin, right? And I know we were a caricature, but that, we believe there's nothing more holy you can do than enjoy this life. So God is mystery, life is a gift of that mystery, and we're not the only ones that have received that gift. That gift has been given to all. That gift has been given to Syrian refugees, that gift has been given to men and women alike. That gift has been given to the financially marginalized and the wealthy. And we are, as recipients, grateful recipients of that gift. There's nothing we can do to be vertically faithful, more vertically faithful than to horizontally find mutuality and share this gift of life. Those three things are the three tenets. Now, when we talk about God as mystery, that first tenet, we realize that there are a lot of different ways to view God. Melissa and I were talking about this last night. You might want to chime in here. Sure. I think what maybe could have been confusing last week are these look like four different concepts of God, theocentrism, pantheism, panentheism, and deism. But honestly, a lot of this overlaps. Um, if anything, theocentrism, this individualized God, the vertical God, is different than deism, which is the grounded God that is infused, um, infused into the world, the ground of all being. So those are sort of opposite, or at least Theocentri Theocentrism is the one a lot of us grew up with. God looks like Burl Ives, right? The grandpa in the sky. Um, but you can move away from that, right, in healthy ways, but still sure. be, have a theocentric view of God. Sure, But absolutely. deism says God is not individualized. Um, I hate to say personalized because we feel both can feel extremely personal. But pantheism and panentheism... Um, panentheism, God is not all things, but infuses all things. And he and I realized last night, you can have a view of God that's theocentric, but also panentheistic, right? You can share both, but yep. you can also have a God that is deistic and panentheistic or pantheistic. And you thought last Here's week mud. was confusing. <laughs> Bottom line is what she's pointing out, though, is, is technically true. 
but ultimately God is mystery. Yes. And if we went around the room right now and ask all of you just to honestly convey your sense of God, I think we would get, even, you know, we would get a whole lot more than just four categories, but right. these are four major categories. And, and, and for progressive spiritualists, the, the humility, the grace that underlies all of this, as we approach God, we no longer have a sense that we've got to find the right answer in order to be at peace with God. Isn't that a relief? Is that a relief to anybody besides me? What a relief for that to be off of us. So that's the first slide. And Before you move on, though, I think it's important to par- uh, focus on that last line. Life is a gift to be shared. So once you get into progressive spirituality, it is no longer about evangelizing the idea that our God is the right God and therefore we want to convince others of other faiths or of no faith that they then need to believe in our God, okay? There's a shift that happens there. There is a gospel and a good news that becomes um, noted that everyone is beloved, and we begin to celebrate that, and we begin to share um, and hope for the health of ourselves and the world, but it's no longer about trying to convince people to change their faith as much as it's about to convince people that there is a healthy life and way to be lived and how you want to get there could be different than how I get there. And, you know, we always said we were sharing our faith, but I don't think we meant that. No. We were not sharing with other people. So share your faith, but allow them to share. That means we all put our faith on the table and we share together. And that's a beautiful experience. So the second slide that Glenn created was a little extension of the first. And that is that progressive spirituality obviously breaks down into different religious expressions. And again, religion is is a positive word. Just like hospitals are not synonymous with health care, Hospitals are organizational structures through which people are able to receive health care. Schools, universities are not education. They are people who have a problem with religion, and there are people who have a problem with educational structures, and there are people who even have a problem with medical structures. And there are people who pull out of these organized systems and do their art, their education, their health, and even their spirituality outside of organized structures. I am not only a spiritualist, somebody who believes in spirituality, I'm also a religionist. With all the good, bad, and ugly of the organization, I still believe in the organization that I help lead. I believe that uh, religion is a good thing. And so progressive spirituality plays out in a lot of different progressive expressions of distinct religions. And the thing that makes these religions distinct from one another as progressives... The thing that makes us distinct from progressive Buddhists and progressive Jews is not the three common tenets. The thing that makes us distinct are the three things listed there on the bottom left corner. That is that each religion has a distinct narrative, a distinct story, or as C.S. Lewis and Joseph Campbell called it, a myth. A lot of people think myth is a negative word that means untrue. Myth actually is a positive word that means something is so true that it bubbles up in a million different expressions. It's an irrepressible truth. It's actually the exact opposite of the pejorative thought a lot of us have about myth. So each of these religions, whether it's Buddhist or Jews or Christians, Christians and Jews, of course, share a large part of their story. But we have a distinct narrative, story, and myth. What's our narrative? Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Egypt, Moses, Joshua, Judges, Kings, Divided Kingdom, Exile, Redaction of our text, scripture put together, return, Jesus, death, burial, resurrection from the nativity, apostles, church history. That's our narrative. We have a narrative, and each religion has a narrative just like that. Second thing that's distinct, that uh, is distinct between these religions, is each of them has a glossary of terms. I'm not just talking about the cliched, kind of sappy Christianese that a lot of us grew up with, but we have distinct terms. Uh, I I just used one a while ago, holy. Holy is a word that I grew up with, and holiness for me growing up meant that my sister couldn't cut her hair and that I couldn't play Little League Baseball, and we couldn't have a television. And when the kids went to see the movie in first grade, my brother had to stay at the school, and he couldn't even go to the movies to see Bambi because we were a holiness people. Sometime the thing that the word represents accrues so much baggage in your life because all of these words that are in our glossary of terms as Christians all of these words represent realities and there are times that the reality accrues so much baggage that this is one of the benefits of language 
It accrues so much baggage that you can't get rid of the reality. So you take the word that represents the reality and you use it as a scapegoat to take away the negativity. And you start with a fresh word, right? So for years, I replaced holiness with a therapeutic psychological term, wholeness. And it was kind of nice because it was it kind of was almost a homonym. Holiness, wholeness. And for 15 years, when I would refer to what Scripture was talking about in terms of holiness, I would just call it wholeness. Little by little, my own heart healed. A lot of this isn't just a theological process. It's a therapeutic process. Anybody notice that? There's intellectual transformation, but then there's also emotional healing. And most of the time, your intellectual progress outpaces your emotional progress. And the heart heals slower than the mind learns. But I've come back to the word holy now. And that's why we said, in terms of the glossary of terms, um, we are always, that right bottom corner, we're always asking ourselves, do we retire and replace a word like I did with holiness? Or do we reappropriate that word? And we're not just reappropriate. When you reappropriate, you're reappropriating the thing itself that the word represents. And we also have symbols and sacraments and tools. And you guys know, for the Christian church, our big symbols, sacraments, and tools that distinguish us are, pers are the person Jesus Christ, the New Testament, and then you could put the Hebrew scripture in there as well, um, but specifically the New Testament, Jesus, baptism, and communion. Those are our four sacraments. So each religion has um, those expressions. Unitarians, we mentioned this last week, they choose not to have a base in any of those. Now, what I didn't say last week was that narrative, that glossary, and those symbols, that simply for a progressive Christian or a progressive Jew is the base from which you start. It is not an exhaustive glossary, and it is not the only narrative you concern yourself with, and these are not the only symbols that you will use and, and hold valuable. But this is the base from which you start and do all of your exploring. Progressive spiritual people are, no matter their religious expression, they are curious people who are explorers. But if, if I think about Christianity for a progressive Christian, though I am a world and universe explorer in a religious sense, when I get on the plane and go home, I come home to Christianity. That's the place I come back to and wash my clothes and get ready to go on my next trip. It is a solid base. And I, over the last several years, as a progressive spiritual person, I have had to. And this, is, this has had vocational implications and personal implications. I have had to. And, and I think anybody who's progressive ultimately looks at themselves and says, am I still a Christian? Can I credibly call myself a Christian? There's all kinds of reasons to call myself a Christian. I mean, it's the way I make a living. It's my family. It's all of that. But I mean, if you're going to franchise as a McDonald's, you've got to have Big Macs, Quarter Pounders, and Chicken Nuggets, right? You can't go in and have a McDonald's franchise and say, I'm going to get rid of all the staples of the McDonald's franchise. It's okay if you don't want to have Quarter Pounders, Big Macs, and Chicken Nuggets. That's okay, but start a Burger King. Don't call it, you see what I'm, you know what I'm saying here, don't call it McDonald's and then change the entire menu. And I had to seriously, and Melissa's the same, I think all ministers do this, especially with a progressive ilk, I had to ask myself, can I genuinely be the proprietor of a McDonald's? Can I genuinely be the proprietor of a Christian church? Thus my own soul searching. And I can peacefully say that Christianity for me has far more equity and capital and benefit than it has baggage. And if I could not say that, I trust I would have enough integrity to step away from my position here and do something else with my life. But Christianity has a has provided for me and continues to provide for me a sufficient, stable base from which to do my exploration. Was that a satisfying response to this particular? Before you move on, though, I want to make sure you understand the reason we have this progressive question mark down here at the end is because we also 
um, want to include what we would label as progressive-minded um, atheists or agnostics or humanists. There's such a thing as a religious humanist who that they want to ascribe to one of these religions, but there's also such a thing as spiritual humanists who are saying basically they don't want to share with us um, the tenet of God is mystery. They don't even want to start exploring that, but they do share the idea that life is a gift and life is meant to be shared. And so we share with them then a moral agenda and a yep. moral center. And so that's why that's included on this spectrum. And we had people turn in, we'll get to this in a moment. We had some, we had some people turn in less than zero. Mm -hmm. You remember Dave Warnock, uh, maybe watching this morning, he's down in Florida, but Dave Warnock, the former Nazarene pastor that I had come up here that time and talk through, um, Dave is agnostic slash atheist in his views toward God, but he still is a part of a Christian community. It was interesting. I thought Dave would come in at like a negative one or a negative two, which is simply a non-theistic approach to, to Jesus. He said, you know, after listening to all this, he said, I think I'm a 1.2. So I'm glad Dave got saved after listening to this spectrum. <laughs> Kidding. All right. Kidding. <laughs> moving so, on. Moving on. What's the next one? Next slide. Next slide. Spectrum okay. of Christianity. So, uh, let me see. This is on. Yeah. So, in terms of spectrum of Christianity, it, it, this is pretty simple. It divides. And I cannot stand labels. I almost put traditional on the left side. But I think the tradition of Christianity is progressive in nature. So, traditional is misleading. Conservative, man, in a lot of ways, technically, as a wordsmith, I, I love words, I feel like you guys are conservative. Um, when I listened to what Mel was saying at the beginning of service in that read, I was thinking, that conserves the message of Jesus. That conserves the mission of Jesus. But, alas, we have to pick a word, and so you know what I mean by conservative, traditional Christianity. And so you move through that, and you ultimately, the big divide between what makes a person a traditional conservative and what makes a person progressive and, dare I say, liberal in terms of theology. Liberal, boy, that's a freighted word, isn't it? But the, uh, the thing that is the dividing line is people on the left side, and I lived there for many, many years, believe the traditional message that human beings are born inherently, not just inherently flawed, because I think there are fissures and cracks in our constitution for sure. But Christian or human beings are born inherently separated from God. And that inherent separation requires a salvific act to reunite them to God. And if they are not reunited to God through that salvific act, then they will suffer eternal separation from God, which in most respects was considered to include eternal torture. On the progressive side, the dividing line is we do not believe human beings are born. And man, this impacts the way you see everybody. It impacts, it, it impacts the way you see not just yourself, but the entire world. We believe every human being is born a child of God. And we do not believe the spiritual journey. We think people take a spiritual journey, but we do not believe the spiritual journey of a human being is to reunite with God we think that the story is not about reuniting, the story is about recognition. Realizing. As we often say, the prodigal did not take a linear journey from child of the devil to child of the father. He was born in union with the father. He did not psychologically and spiritually appropriate that. And he took a long journey, just like a lot of us did. But when he came home, he didn't become something he wasn't. He finally lived into what he had always been. And that is the progressive model of spirituality. So we just, we wanted to say, if, from us, if you are on the left side, we want you here, we love you, you are a part of us, there's no separation, but you probably are not going to enjoy us. <laughs> and we cannot fix that because that is a strong ideological divide and be here but I cannot accommodate that view because I personally see progressive is about tolerance and I can tolerate that to an extent but I have felt my last 15 years a prophetic call to speak against that 
because, and, and boy, you have to really think this through, because I think this is damaging. I, I don't just think this is another idea. I think a fear-based view of God, the human family has to evolve out of. And I think much of what we see in our world, the divisions that are happening and the judgments that are being made and the separations that are being created, I think, derive from a fear-based view of God. And a fear-based view of God predates Christianity. When humans first began to think about God, our first thoughts were that the gods were angry and every bad thing that happened to us was the punishment of the gods. The Jewish family brilliantly brought an innovation to that idea of an angry God. Buddhism quickly followed the Jewish family in this. But the innovation of the Jewish family was not monotheism. It was that God is not capricious and whimsical, but God is moral. The Jewish family's original thoughts about God was that the gods are still angry, but they are justifiably angry because we have sinned. And that begins the course of sacrifice, reuniting, priests, temples, demilitarized zones that we could come back to God. So progressive Christianity. Yeah. Okay, before we move on to the next one, I think it's important to realize that this, the middle of this spectrum that's up on the screen right now, before you get to the line, plenty of us started going on this journey because not only has this church taken this journey, but many of us have, as individuals have taken this journey and that is why we came here and ended up at a place like this. But so to the left of this main line, many of us between N.T. Wright and the line and Tony Campbell in the line, we started reading people like Philip Gully, who has this great book, If Grace is True, Why God Will Save Everyone. And then you start reading books like Love Wins, where ultimately you're still saying there is a separation model, but you're saying that in the cross and what happened on the cross that Jesus saves everybody, okay? That is prior to the line. That's, and maybe, It's really kind of the last quartile <laughs> yeah, right at the line. Yeah. So when you cross over this shift, and again, this overlaps a little bit, but when you cross over, the question is no longer about the afterlife, okay? You make a shift because pre the line, and Brian said this this week, and I wanted us, I wanted you to hear it. Pre the line, you're getting information basically on how to get to heaven after you die, okay? And then there was a little, uh, a large footnote right underneath that that said, uh, we're going to focus on increasing your personal happiness and uh, success with God. Then there's a smaller footnote under that that we're going to tell you a little bit about character development. Then after that, maybe a little bit about spiritual experience. And then after that, maybe we'll talk every once in a while about social and global transformation. Okay, that is to this side of the line. You cross the line, it changes. We are not focusing on the afterlife. We're focusing on transformation here and now for us as individuals, for the social systems and structures in our world. We are focusing on the whole thing, okay? So do you watch as that shift happens then? So I just wanted and to clarify. Mel, people then push back on us and say, you mean you don't believe in the afterlife anymore? Of course we do. We hold it in mystery. mystery. And we are really satisfied that if we do this life well, which is the gift of God, it will parlay just fine into the great mystery that is the afterlife. So just bring the focus back here. Um, okay. Yeah, that was, so that was some of the stuff you guys got into Ooh, with Brian so this, week. this week. So much. All right, so last slide and then less. So this is where you're going to help us with the reveal. <laughs> Progressive Christianity, who was and is Jesus. These are the four... And again, there are many more ways that people see Jesus, but these are four overarching categories that I think really capture 98% of the views that we would have in this room on Jesus. The creedal Jesus, the moral exemplar teacher Jesus, the Christ-conscious exceptional human Jesus, and then the legendary hero Jesus. We asked you last week, and some pushed back and said that was kind of unfair to put us immediately on the spot. but. Listen, we're holding this not with a grain of salt, but, but lightly. This is not a test. Nobody's going, to, um, nobody's going to get punished if they don't have the right score because there is no right score. We think in a progressive Christian community, these are all safe views of Jesus. Now, there are some of these that I feel are a better bet than others in my own gut. Melt like the left side of the line I feel is damaging. There's nothing here that feels damaging to me. Um, and so I literally did a little experiment myself and I just divided up, you know, 100% and I said, what percentage would you give to each of these? That was really helpful. If you were a betting man, what percentage would you ascribe to each of these? Now, I want to say this, if you ever play with the numbers again, 
creedal Jesus is not a 10. The view of a creedal second person of the Trinity Jesus, that's not a 10. It really covers the space between 10 and 7.5. So if you are an 8.75, let me explain what that means. If you're an 8.75, that means you are satisfyingly right in the middle of creedal Jesus. You don't lean toward the 10 side and being uber dogmatic about it. And you don't lean toward the 7.5 side of even beginning to think that there's another way that you need to see it. So if you're at 8.75, you're just kind of satisfied and peaceful there. If you're at 8, you're kind of looking over and saying, I'm more satisfied with the creedal Jesus. It's kind of a 65-35 thing, but I'm looking at the teacher Jesus, moral exemplar. We had 189 respondents. Yes, 189. 189 respondents. The mean, let's remember seventh grade math, mean, median, and mode. The mean is the average of the 189 added together and divided. The median average of this church, 189, I think is statistically significant. We had 351 adults last week and 189 respondents. So, and if we have 350 adults on a Sunday, that means we probably have twice that many. So we probably have 700 adults. We had 189 respondents, statistically significant, I think. The median, no, the mean. 4.7. Now, the only reason we're doing this is because we want you to know that you're not the only one who's crazy. <laughs> we want you to know and have courage that other people... Now, I literally worked through these slides, developed all this, brought it to Mel, we refined it further and just kept thinking about it without numbers in our head. And we... when. So this made me feel good that we, we are pretty good shepherds here because we developed this thinking about who you are and who we are and after developing it, it literally bell curved in our congregation. For those of you who know what I mean by a bell curve, it literally bell curved. The mean was 4.7. The median, the middle number, put all 189 scores out there the median number was 5.0. Let's switch the slide so they can see it. Yeah. And the mode was also 5.0. Now, look at this. I, I drew this up this morning, and Glenn was good enough to get it into a chart. If you drew a line in the first quartile, look at, look at this, y'all. Number one, I was really interested. Not one person turned in a card saying they were above 10. We had people turn in saying they were below zero. It's interesting. This is a more comfortable place for people like Dave Warnock than it is a fundamentalist on the concern. That makes sense to me. But the first, um, the first quartile, the creedal Jesus, we had 28. So look at these four quartiles. If you think about a bell curve, we had 28 in the first quartile. In the farthest quartile on the other side, we had 29. So the hero Jesus and the creedal Jesus, 28 and 29. The two middle quartiles, just like a bell curve, 67% of you fell in the middle two. 62 on the, cre on the I'm sorry, you got, yeah, yeah, yeah. Glenn, you're fired! <laughs> The example, the great moral example, Jesus, 62, the Christ conscious, incredible human who found Christ consciousness and teaches us how to find Christ consciousness, 70 of you. Huh. So before we get to the... Uh, the reveal? The, well, no, I want to get to oh. the reveal so we can get on to the Q&R a little bit. So your board, uh, your, your council of leadership, we did this with them, and their average is 5.1. Mm. Okay? Right? You... I think, I think when we added Barbara Casey in, she skewed it down to about a 2.4. <laughs> no. Sorry, Barbara. That's a comment. It was around 5. 5.1. Okay. And then your pastors. This is myself, Stan, Anna, and then we include Ron in that. He does not, not like to be called a pastor, but he's so pastoral. Isn't Ron Miller just about the he best is. pastor around here? So... I'm interested. So just yell out where you think our average is. Come on. Three, four. 
2.5 are your pastors. So the most common, interestingly, the most common number was five. Now, think about a church and the way leadership impacts a church and the way followership impacts leadership. The most prominent number was five. Everybody wants to, you know, Aristotle's golden mean. We all want to be five. So we had 34 at five. And right after You know, at the second, 34 at five, 33 were 2.5, yeah. which all three of the pastors are 2.5ers. Yeah. So I guess people are getting impacted yeah. for good or bad. <laughs> um, now, so. but we are committed. We talked about this earlier this week. All four of those are a part of our spectrum. And vocational maturity on our part is to not minister out of a 2.5 voice exhaustively. But to have worship services and messages that communicate the full spectrum of 10 to 0. I will say that the people who are struggling here the most at our church are the people on this side of 875. People who are 8s, 9s, and 10s who are still... There's something about the creedal Jesus that is a part of orthodoxy and right belief. And it carries... I don't think that's baggage or equity. I'm kind of neutral on that. I'm just noticing these are the folk that are probably going to need the most equanimity to be able to work with us and stay with us. I kind of wish that we had one staff member that was two and a half, one that was five, one that was seven and a half. But I used to be a seven and a half, but they've ruined me since they've been here the last five or six years. So, All right, right. so let's get on to Q&R. We would love to hear from you. Um, we have two people out with microphones, hopefully, somewhere. Yes, Randy or Dale? Yeah, Dale and Reed. Questions or comments? Raise your hand if you've got something. Come on over here, Reed. She's running, she's running. Boskel. Boskel. Hello. Hello. Um, I was thinking about the, the creedal Jesus and why that, that might be a problem. I don't know. This isn't really a question. I think that embedded within the creedal Jesus is a picture of a Jesus that saves us from God hmm. in a lot of ways. So, so part of the reason that um, you're talking about this, the struggle is because, is because some of the theology of who God is um, is embedded yeah. in, in that creedal Jesus. Um, and, and That's that, a great insight. That's a great insight. I've been talking about that all week long. When people ask me, do you believe in the Trinity? Yes, I believe in the Trinity as a part of church history and our earliest attempts as monotheistic people to frame these very three important words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we had to deal with. And the Trinitarian model was a model that pointed to. If you guys, if we went to a Baptist or Nazarene church and took a test on the Trinity, we would all fail compared to what the creedal fathers actually said. It is a complex doctrine. But the Trinitarian model was a group of monotheistic Jewish people progressively trying to reconcile the human relationship with the divine. And there was a sending of a son, and the son, on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, in Acts 2, you can read it, Peter literally said, using the Trinitarian model, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but he used the Trinitarian model, Peter literally looked at people who received the Holy Spirit, and he said, Jesus Christ rose from the dead ascended into the heavens, took his own blood, poured it on the mercy seat, received in exchange for his blood from the Father, the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out on all of us. That is a brilliant first century appropriation in a sacrificial world. But the Chris is exactly right. The Trinitarian model is a salvific model. It's a model of intercession that helps reconcile. So when people move from universal salvation, the last quartile of the conservative ranks, over, and they carry the model of the Trinity, but not the message of the Trinity, then they have to do what Richard Rohr has done. Richard Rohr has doubled back and said there is a better appropriation for us now of the Trinity, and it is perichoresis and the dance of relationship. So a lot of theologians now are drawing new insights about the Trinity uh, because of the old salvific model. 
important to point out, I just thought about this. The reason I think all of you, uh, Grace Point looks very different than a lot of the churches that you come from and even very different than other progressive, say, mainline churches. So I just spent the week with about 35 seminarians and some of them were pastors. And pretty much the average of everyone there was a 2.5 belief um, in Jesus and God. But many of them are still in mainline denominations, so their church looks more like 10 to 7.5. They've yeah. got lots of creedal language. And so it's not that they don't believe further down the spectrum. It's that they're in situations where they don't have the freedom to expand, to reappropriate, yep. to um, rename a lot of these things. And we have had the freedom to do that here. And so that's important to note that that is why you felt a shift um, in our worship, in our way that we view prayer, the way that we um, sing and talk about God, because yep. we do have that freedom to do that. Explore. Exactly right. We, uh, could you put the slide back up? Which one? Very important, the last one. Very important for us to indicate or to tell you guys, and just remember that's the moral example. When you get into this domain, we are not saying, nor do we believe, that that direction is progress. I don't believe this one is better than that one, and this one's better than that one, and this one's better than that one. I really, I really, I fall in this area, but I actually can give percentage points. Thank you. Glenn, you're back on payroll. <laughs> the high salary big of bucks. zero as a volunteer. Big bucks he makes. So, so don't feel like, I, I have seen people in this, I think we jump back and forth, and ultimately each of these has something to say to us. And I kind of hold these in mixture. So please don't get the sense that we're saying you, you got to move this direction because that's just not true. Oh, Mel talked a little earlier. The folks that responded down here off of the zero, these four pictures of Jesus are theistically driven. At the base of all of these, there is a divine missive. It, it either is the direct sending of God or an evolutionary evolving of the divine image into the person of Jesus. When you get down past zero, you lose that theistic sense. But there are a lot of humanists that think Jesus is a marvelous example. And they still have a view of Jesus, but it's not theistically driven. So, others, anybody want to chime in? Steve? <coughs> or, oh, here. Yeah. questions. Um, so the first is, I'm thinking of theologians like Greg Boyd, who I think would be way more on the conservative um, side, yep. but I strongly believe his theology is not damaging. And so I wonder if you're able to entertain an idea that there's a way to look at the cross of salvation, but more on the Christus Victor side of things, and to see that perspective of Jesus as Jesus and God, but view it as not damaging. Yes. That last quartile of conservative Christianity that moves into universal salvation and has Christ redeeming all people, yes, I don't feel like that's damaging. Um, I, I think there's a better way to state that, and I don't think we have to hold that, but that's not damaging uh, the way the others that send, you know, the majority of humans to hell. You're exactly right. And then another question, and this is a big question um but so in looking at sort of different views of god um i wonder if and i haven't been here a bunch so um kind of looking at satan and spiritual warfare and kind of where this church falls in you know we've talked about the view of god but how are we talking about satan and evil there are two plausible ways that we view demonology and angelology and i think both of them are plausible and can fit on either side of the conservative or progressive uh, the classic view is that we are not alone in this universe and there are other beings. There is a cosmic level of being that predates humanity and that is the angel, demon, spirit world. And every religion has their story of how angels and demons developed. Uh, some of you have had experiences with evil. Some of, that, some of those evil experiences have even worn faces and they have come to you personified at times. And so... I don't think it's implausible. Progressive people are open to the idea that we're not the only game that God is playing in the universe. So why would, we, why would it be strange to us that there might be angels and demons? I think it's also possible that angels and demons are very real, but they are simply metaphor and indicators of the extreme ends of the human psychic spectrum. By psychic, I mean soulish spectrum. 
I think that we, the real amazing thing about humanity is not just the spectrum of, not just the spectrum of maturity and immaturity, some call it good and evil, not just the spectrum amongst many humans, but the spectrum inside every living soul. The capacity that we have for greatness and the capacity we have to do abhorrent things in the same individual. And there was a time when we could not wrap our mind around the fact that we could be that good or that bad. And we developed the idea of angels and demons to represent that. That's why in Othello, Shakespeare's Othello, and then uh, Lincoln quoted it at the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln, who was a progressive Christian, said, if our nation is going to be healed, we're going to have to appeal to the better angels of our nature. He's referring to this idea, a more progressive view of angels and demons, that these are the extreme ends of us. They're inside of us. That's why if you have a little white angel over here and a little red devil over here, you know that cliched picture? If you look at the face, who is the face of both of those? You are. That's the better angels of your nature and the worst demons of your nature. That's referring to that. I personally think both of those are plausible. Now, I think the way you approach spiritual activity at that point varies based upon your view. But as a progressive, I, I think both those are plausible. Well, it makes sense if your view of God is a theistic, personalized, individualized God, then it would make sense that you could hold a yep. character of evil that is then Satan the devil. And if you go towards more of the deistic non-individualized view of God, then all of a sudden you shift into um, naming Satan or evil or uh, the devil becomes the, the uh, evil social structures of our world. And Principalities the and powers. Yeah, but it yep. shifts there. Yep, absolutely. Great question. Steve. Um, comment and a question. Looking at the uh, spread here and so forth, from our perspective of being an inclusive church, seems like that this would be a great place to be inclusive as well in terms of all the different perspectives you've outlined there. So I think that, that sounds great. My, my question though is how do we move out of contemplation into doing things? Yeah. Um, personally, I'm just, this has been a several year pro, um, journey for us and I'm ready to, let's, I mean, what are, you, what are we doing next to settle this? and to move into how we actually do things. And the whole the, point, the whole point is exactly what you're saying right now. And so I guess with the differences in the, let's say we all are in those different areas, how, do, how does what we do address any different issues in those areas or are we the same in how we act? I, I think, and I said, we're at a point of clarity on the theological underpinnings and then what we're called to do because of those theological underpinnings. I think this church is coming to the end of that three-year, it's actually a 14-year process of definition to be who we are, which is a post-evangelical, liberal, progressive, Christian church. And we live off liberal because a lot of people don't like that word, but post-evangelical, progressive, Christian church. And literally, the staff and council has been saying, we have got to end the contemplation as being our driving impetus. We gotta put this on paper somewhere on a video series, tuck it away and say, if anybody wants to know who we are, these are our things, now let's go do something together. And I, and I think we're all kind of there. And the ones, <clears throat> the ones who've been here the longest are the most tired of this. The ones who are new are the most invigorated, but I, I think we all have a general consensus. And Mel came back from down there this week, public theology, saying, you know what, we, we tell them what you told me about the wrong questions. Well, again, when we were in our uh, staff board meeting a week and a half ago talking about all these perspectives, at one point I literally jumped up out of my seat and grabbed a marker and said, once we get into this spectrum, it is no longer um, pointing up and trying to all land in the same place. It is 100% about no matter where you land, how is this affecting your life and the world around you? Period. That is the better question to be asked. It is no longer how are we getting to heaven and getting and escaping this earth. It is how are we being transformed right here, right now. And so this is the shift. Also, I want to remind us often, I hope the critique is always we are not doing enough because I think we should always be working to do better. But I want to remind you right now, 
we don't have one formalized thing that this is what Grace Point does. We don't say Grace Point does only homeless or Grace Point does only prison ministry. But guess what you all are already doing? You're doing prison outreach. You're doing homeless outreach. You are feeding um, impoverished people in our communities. You are standing up for Black Lives Matter. You are helping the immigrants and going to the refugee neighborhoods. I mean, you're already doing that, and I applaud that, and we need to be doing that more, and we will. That's why I put on a post uh, last week, Jesus is up. not going to say, what'd you say? I'm a little fired up. I know. It, but we all are. Jesus is not going to say, well believed. He's going to say, well done. But the things we do are born out of our beliefs. And the journey this church has been on is an important journey. And I promise you, the eyes of the church are on us. And we're doing something very special and very distinct. And even this is a template for, I think, many that are coming after us. But ultimately, somebody, Jesus says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was stranger, I was naked, I was a prisoner, and you did this for me. I'm telling you, the reason those people did that for him was not salvific. Because he's standing there saying, enter into the joy of the Lord because you did this. And they literally look at him and say, when did we see you hungry? See, they weren't scheming salvifically to please God to get into heaven. You know why they fed hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner people? Because they cared. And because they cared, they did good things. And they cared because of what they believed. They believed every human being was created in the image of God. And we ought to be about the, po about the process of diminishing suffering and elevating joy. And if we do that, guys, we are the church that God has called us to be. And that's the bottom line. All right. So. So we would love to keep hearing from you. We want to keep this conversation going. Please go on to our Facebook page, or the community page specifically, or email in to Ron or me or Stan, and we'll put them all together. Um, your questions, your comments. Uh, if any of you have concerns about all this, we want to hear them so we can grow together. Absolutely. Um, we, the next couple of weeks... I don't know exactly what, you have an incredible message that you're going to give that really speaks specifically because it's not just about our doing outside of the building. As a church, we do some things inside the building. Mel put together a message for a bunch of progressive leaders um, here while back. We went up to Indianapolis on the worship service itself. And these questions are going to impact the way we gather together. Here while back, we did a mirror exercise and we wrestled with, you know, can we call that communion? And, and through all this process, it's been great for us. We're going to do mirror exercises. But we're also going to break bread and drink wine together. And that's communion. We have our symbols, but we're going to explore from those symbols and add a lot. Of, so you got a well, message. In our exploring, I just want to note, since you brought that up, in our exploring, we're going to make mistakes. And so me looking back, I won't call those mirror exercises communion again. I think there's no need to do that. But for you to know that we're going to do communion where we break bread and we drink um, that wine, just juice. It's not Welch's. Wine. Welches, um, but we're going to do that together. Pino Welches. And then sometimes we're going to do things that are outside of the box, like mirror work. And so, again, I think it's important to know we will make mistakes in this process, but we're going to explore and grow together. Okay. Yeah. Yep. All Turn right. in, uh, email us questions, thoughts, concerns. Join us right now at Drake's. It is over um, right by Starbucks and Carabas. Come over there. Continue these questions and conversations. God bless you guys. We're doing good stuff. <laughs>